remarkable story. It's one of my favourite stories in all the scriptures and all one can do in these particular situations is just pray the Lord doesn't speak to me because it's too big a story and it's too wonderful a story but it's a story that's personal and a story that speaks wonders of the glory of our God and one wonders of the wonder of how he saves sinners every sinner that's saved will call him precious every sinner that's saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ will see his blood as precious and what a glorious meeting this is between this woman. <laughs> Let's just read the story. We might begin <clears throat> in verse 5. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour, it was about midday. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence? Hast thou this, that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, <clears throat> Whosoever drinketh this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me. The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. 
And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples and marvelled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meantime, meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. And he said unto them, But I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said his disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say ye not, there are, four, there are yet four months, then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white or ready to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto eternal life, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap whereon you bestowed no labour. Other men laboured and you entered into their labours. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all that ever I did. So that when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And said unto the woman, We now believe, now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. What a glorious story. What a glorious picture of salvation. It's very hard for us to comprehend how much the Jews despised the Samaritans. They despised them because of their interbreeding. They despised them because they worshipped on the mountain up there in Samaria. They despised them because they were compromising people. They compromised with whoever would suit them best. When it suited them best to be friends with the Jews, they'd be friends with the Jews. When it suited them best to be friends with the enemies of the Jews, they were suited with the enemies of the Jews. They were a half-bred, mongrel race, according to the Jews. There was no one lower in the estimation of the Jews. And they'd been enemies of Israel. You might recall that the beginning of the Samaritan race was... And the beginning of Samaritan worship was in the days of Jeroboam after Solomon erected those temples up, that temple up there to mimic the temple of Jerusalem. It's all about false worship. And when those northern tribes were taken away and the lions and other things came, they sent, they sent priests back from Babylon and Syria and they mixed 
with the population that was there. And so the Samaritans were considered a, a, a half-bred Jewish population, but they can still consider them Jews. You saw here that you know, our father Abraham, Jacob, they still believed in Jacob. But as far as the Jews were concerned, they were the dirtiest and filthiest people that you could possibly imagine, which is why the story of the Good Samaritan is so unbelievably shocking to them. They wouldn't have seen anything good in any Samaritan at all. They were, they were despised. And yet this story begins, of course, and our chapter divisions were there placed by men. The chapter division should be ignored and then we can see the story of what happened, this amazing picture of what happened. John the Baptist had given his last testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and he finished and says in verse 35 of the previous chapter, the father loveth the son and has given all things into his hands. The son has all things, all things in creation, all things in providence, all things in salvation, everything is in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 36, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. It is the possession of all those that believe on the Son. And he that believeth not, he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now for a Jew, there was no question about where the wrath of God abided. The wrath of God abided on the Samaritans, for at least the wrath of God was there. And then in the beginning of chapter 4, we have this contention, wherefore when the Lord knew, it's spoken of earlier in chapter 3, when the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had made and baptised more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptised not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed. He left the Jews. He left them to their religion. He left them in the darkness of their Judaism and their self-righteousness. He left them. They judged him and they judged John the Baptist and they judged them unworthy. They had seen the miracles, they'd seen all those things and they came to judge and they came to divide and the Lord left them. He left them. He left them and departed. It's a sobering thing to contemplate, isn't it? In John chapter 12, after another two years of the Lord's ministry before them where he did things that no one else has ever done, he did things that only Messiah had ever done. He taught as one that taught the very words of God because he spoke the very words of God in their midst. It says in John chapter 12, he hid himself from them. He hid himself from them. I don't want God to hide himself I don't want the Lord Jesus Christ to hide himself from me. I don't want the Lord Jesus Christ to leave and depart. To leave and depart. And so in that context, he left and departed. He left them. He left them to their religion. He left them to their self-righteousness. And he departed and he went to the lowest of the low. He went to the very lowest of the low you could possibly imagine. You might recall that... Later on, the Pharisees would accuse him of being a Samaritan. And this probably is the story which was the basis of that, to actually to be in the presence of a Samaritan for a Jew was to be defiled. To actually take 
a water cup from a Samaritan and drink from a Samaritan's water cup was for you to be ritually defiled as far as the Jews were concerned, to actually go into their houses and live with them for two days was a sign, as far as the Jews were concerned, that you didn't have a clue about who God was. You didn't have a clue about righteousness whatsoever. And so this story is the genesis of so much of the opposition and they would justify themselves from it. They'd go to passages in Leviticus about purity and they would prove to themselves that this man cannot possibly be the Messiah. He defiles the Sabbath and here he is actually living for two days in a Samaritan village. He abode with the Samaritans for two days. Oh, may he come and abide with us. It's a glorious picture of God's salvation. See, he left them and he came to her. He left them at this particular time and he came to this one particular woman at this one particular time in these one particular circumstances that he might reveal himself to her, that he might reveal her to herself and he might show her how God saves sinners. So she went from completely lost, not even with a thought of seeking God, to being saved in this story. It's a glorious story. And if it's not your story, I pray that today it might become your story. And if it was your story some time ago, it'll be your story again today. So this is a story that continues to resonate with the children of God. It's a glorious picture of how the Lord Jesus Christ comes to sinners in their defilement and how he joins himself with them, takes their sins and gives them his righteousness. So it's a perfectly fit thing for the Saviour of the world to dwell in the presence of Samaritans. It's a glorious picture. We're all Samaritans. We're all like this woman. Okay, we're going to sing again number 33. Thank you.
right to be there and one of the wonderful things about being in India is that lots of India was just like Palestine and Israel was 2,000 years ago. The, the farming that I saw in India, they wouldn't have changed a thing. They ploughed with oxen and they had wooden ploughs. But one of the other things they had was wells and it's a dry part of the land and certainly they have a long extended period of dry weather around that Mediterranean and across lots of the rest of the world. And so wells are a very big deal. And uh, they were in the villages. Nadia comes from Pakistan and she goes back to Pakistan again. She'll see wells in the villages. They were a meeting place in the villages and they were dug. This Jacob's well is... Um, reputed to be about 30 metres deep and 3 metres wide. So they dug them down and what they did is they were digging down not to make a receptacle for water like the well at the back of our house, but they're actually digging down through the rock until they found the water that bubbled out of the bottom because the water that bubbled out and was kept in the ground was the water that sustained them and kept their lives alive. Kept them alive all that time through those dry times. So this well was a precious well and around the well, the well was a meeting place and around the well there were stones that protected you from falling in and protected animals and other things from falling in and defiling it. It was precious, this water was precious. And so these wells were remarkable. I want us to contemplate this well and the beginning of this well because in this story we have, we have a beautiful picture of the Lord going back into Galilee. And you might recall in John chapter 1, the Lord Jesus comes to Nathanael and he comes to Galilee and he meets up with Nathanael. And you might recall the story he told Nathanael. He said, he said, I saw you under the fig tree. I saw you under the fig tree. When you were praying under the fig tree and I saw you before you even knew I was there. And he makes a remarkable statement about Nathaniel. He says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile, there is no deceit in the true Israelite of God. All of those who have been cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ have no guile. And he says... In his first visit into Galilee after his baptism, at the beginning of his public ministry, he goes into Galilee. And the first time he goes into Galilee, Nathaniel says, you're the king of Israel. You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said unto him at the end of John chapter 1, Because I said unto thee that I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou, thou shalt see greater things than this. And he said unto him, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven opened. This is what salvation is, isn't it? Heaven opened. And the angel of God, the angels of God, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The picture, of course, is the picture of Jacob when he had left. Jacob's name means deceiver, supplanter. And Jacob had deceived his father. He'd stolen his brother's birthright. He and his mother had concocted the deceit of Isaac so that, Ish so that Jacob would have the birthright. Isaac, um, Esau had sold it, of course, for a bowl of beans, which is what all of humanity does. But nonetheless, Jacob was not, there's nothing in Jacob's life that causes you to think, this is a guy who is esteemed of God. 
The remarkable thing in the scriptures, isn't it? Romans 9 says that God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. The most remarkable part of that verse is how on earth did he ever love Jacob? There's very, very little that's very lovable about Jacob. He was a deceiver and he ends up after this event. So at the first time the Lord goes into Galilee after his baptism, he actually tells this story of Jacob on his journey out. And here in John chapter 4, we have him going back in to Galilee. He went back into Galilee. His second trip into Galilee. And his second trip into Galilee, he comes to Jacob's will. And Jacob's will, let's go back to Genesis chapter 33. I just want us to see the setting. There's no accident. When Jacob found himself on that particular plot of land... And for whatever reason, whether they used the fork sticks and other things, whatever reason they found the place, if you're going to dig a deep well, you want to make sure you're digging it in a good place. But Jacob dug this well 2,000 years ago. And one of the reasons Jacob dug this well 2,000 years ago is that we could hear this story 4,000 years later and that we could hear and we could see the story in this picture. And so the well is incredibly significant. And you might remember the story, Jacob left in fear because his brother Esau had promised to destroy him. And Jacob comes back in his journey and he's absolutely terrified about what he's going to meet when he meets Esau. And then he hears that Esau was coming to meet him with a troop of 400 men. Now what on earth do you normally think when that happens? Jacob thought, this is the end of my days. This is the end of my days. So he gathered together this huge herd of animals, 580 animals he arranged. Cattle and goats and camels, you can read all about it. He has all those ready and he sends a message to Esau. He sends him a message in chapter 32. He sends his messengers with a message. And you know the story. Jacob ends up on his own. Let's turn to verse, verse 9. And Jacob prayed. And Jacob said, Jacob's in fear of his life. He's in fear of losing absolutely everything. He says, Oh God, my father Abraham, uh, the God, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which, thou, which said us unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will dig... I'll deal well with thee. I'm not worthy to be called of the least of all the mercies and all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I have become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau. I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children." And thou says, God said, Jacob is reminding God what God says. It's a good thing to remind God what God has said, isn't it? I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. And he organises this present for Esau. I want us to look at a couple of things. He has this meeting in verse 24 and following. You know the meeting well, the Lord Jesus Christ met with Jacob 
And the Lord Jesus Christ wrestled with Jacob all day long and to all night long. And in verse 26, he says, let me go for the day breaketh. And he says, Jacob says, I will not let you go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? The Lord asked Jacob his name. What's your name? My name is Deceiver. My name is Supplanter. My name is Corrupter. And God says, Thy name shall be no more shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince thou hast power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. What's the name of God? He's the prince with God, isn't he? Anyway, he passed over. I want us to go to have a look at the meeting. And they met. And he meets. In chapter 33, and he says in verse 8, Esau says, What do you mean? What meanest thou by all this drove with them, by these 580 cattle I met? And he said, These are to find grace in thy sight, my Lord. And Esau said, verse 9, I have enough. I have enough, my brother. Keep that that thou hast unto thyself. And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me, because I have enough. And he urged him and he took it. I want us to take note of one thing in those two words. Esau says, I have enough. Esau says, I have much. I have an exceeding amount, he says. Esau's got 500 men to go with him. You imagine the rest of the troop and the cattle and the other things that were behind. Esau says, I have much. I have enough. I have got an exceeding amount. The person like Jacob that God has dealt graciously with says in verse 11, God has dealt graciously with me. If God has dealt graciously with you, you have enough. When Jacob says, I have enough, it's a completely different word in the original language. Jacob says, I have everything. I have all things. The point, of course, isn't it, is that it doesn't matter how many cattle you have, and it doesn't matter how many soldiers you have, it doesn't matter what you have in this world. If you have the Lord Jesus Christ, you have absolutely everything. You have everything. We are the inheritors of a universe. We co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. The trinkets and the trifles of this world are meaningless, aren't they, to the child of God? The streets up there are paved with gold. I have enough. I have enough. I want us to go down to the beginning of this world in verse 17. 
Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built him a house and made booths for his cattle. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And when he came from Padamaran and pitched his tent before the city, and he bought a parcel of a field. Remember, Abraham just had a place to bury his wife and his family. Jacob bought this field. He bought this parcel of a field. He ended up giving it to Joseph, if you read in Genesis 49. And he bought it at the, at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. You see, this well, this well is a picture, isn't it? It's a, it's a picture of the grace of God to a sinner like Jacob. No wonder that the Lord Jesus Christ uses this story in this place to meet this other sinner. It's a glorious picture, isn't it? And he erected there an altar. He erected there an altar. An altar is the place of sacrifice. Because all of these people, all of these old patriarchs, if you read all of their stories, you'll find that everywhere they settled, every place they settled, they built an altar to God. They built an altar to acknowledge the fact that this, this is the only way sinners can be in the very presence of God, is through an altar. He erected there an altar and he called it El El Ohi Israel. It's a lovely name, isn't it? I wish you could, I could speak Hebrew, but I can't. I'm not even going to try. But it means God, the God of Israel. He erected this altar, the God, the God of Israel. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there is an altar, isn't there? Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there's an altar. And like the fire that fell on the burning bush, the altar was lit in Leviticus chapter 9 and later when Solomon dedicates the temple, the altar, the fire on the altar is lit by God. Men kept it alive, but God lit the fire. It's a fire from heaven. And it pictures the Lord Jesus Christ. The altar is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a picture. He's the sacrifice on the altar. He is the altar. He's the altar on which the sacrifice is sacrificed. And the altar is the place of forgiveness. The altar is the place of acceptance with God. The altar, that place of sacrifice, is the place where sinners can meet God and have their sins taken away. You know the story of Isaiah. He's one of many pictures in the Old Testament, isn't it? He meets the Lord Jesus Christ in the temple and sees his glory. And when you see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're humbled in your presence and you actually know what you are. And that's exactly what happened to this sinner at Jacob's well. At this place where Jacob had set up an altar, Isaiah says, Woe is me, woe is me, for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And mine eyes, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and one of these seraphim, and the seraphim have a song, don't they? The seraphim have a simple, simple song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. One of these seraphims flew to me, this sinner that's undone, having a live coal in his hand. Where did he take it from? Where did he take the living coal from? 
which he had in his hand, which he had taken with tongs off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged, thy sins are completely washed clean. There is an altar, brothers and sisters. Christ Jesus is the altar. I'll finish this part of our service by just going to Hebrews chapter 10. It says, we have an altar. All the children of God, all the people of God, we have an altar. And we know what happens from that altar, don't we? All of the fire of God's wrath falls on that sacrifice. And if the fire of God's wrath falls on the Lord Jesus Christ and we are hidden in the Lord Jesus Christ, the fire of God's wrath and the fire of God's judgment can never in justice ever fall upon us again. That's why the angel, the seraphim, could say to, to Isaiah, your sin is taken away. That's what the altar is about. That's what the sacrifice is about. That's what the blood is about. That's what Jacob set up the altar about. It was all about the fact that he had met with God and survived. He had wrestled with God and prevailed. We have an altar, says the writer to the Hebrews, whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. We have an altar. We have an altar. The Lord Jesus Christ walked away from those Jews and revealed himself as the altar to that woman in Samaria. They can serve the tabernacle all day long. You can serve in earthly ways with earthly things all day long. And you can do it in ways that men esteem and they, you can do it in such ways that you would look upon their religion and you would be astounded at how moral they are and how devout they are and how religious they are. And you'd feel dirty in their presence because they are so holy. God says they can't eat at our altar, brothers and sisters. They can't eat at our altar. So this altar is a feast for the children of God, isn't it? It is a well of water, as the Lord said to that lady. It's a well of water springing up unto eternal life. God saves sinners. This is a faithful saying. The Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. May we be allowed by the presence and the grace of God to eat at that altar, to feast upon the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This lady did. What an extraordinary journey she must have had over those next three years. She and that little group of believers in that village in Samaria saw the Lord Jesus Christ rejected and rejected and rejected and scorned by men and eventually by those Jews, those religious Jews that the Lord walked away from. He gave himself into their hands and they put him to death. How must she have felt as they saw all that? And it's no wonder that in Acts chapter 7 in Samaria, Philip has a great ministry, a great ministry. How they must have rejoiced at the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and he went up to that mountain nearby them. What a glorious
this glorious picture of the Lord Jesus, saving his people, preserving his people, coming to them in the wilderness, coming to them in their depravity and in their sin and making them perfectly holy to be in his presence. May the Lord bless his words. So, let's have a